Keeping up with the research and then applying it to your clinical practice is hard. That's where we come in. I'm Sarah Cavallaro. And I'm Mim Rodder, and we are paediatric OTs who, through this Research and Reality podcast, aim to help you better examine the research and then interpret that into the practicalities of reality for the families you work with. So join us for the adventure. Well, welcome back, Sarah, to another episode of Research and Reality. Thanks, Mim. It's great to be back. I'm excited for another episode. Yes, it's always interesting. This one is particularly interesting. So this is from our expert that we'll be having at the end of the term and we'll be able to speak to her and ask her some questions. And I'm going to attempt the title. Good girl. It's (laughs) a mouthful, hey? Yes. So we were talking about how a lot of them are long, but this one has one word that I've been practicing. So the title of this particular article is Relation of Sensory Processing and Stomatognical System of Oral Respiratory Children. Yeah, that's it. And it was published in March 2021 in a journal called CODAS. And again, I hadn't heard of that journal before. It looks like it's a Brazilian journal um, and CODAS stands for Communication Disorders, which is the C-O-D, Audiology, which is the A, and Swallowing, which is the S. So CODAS is the acronym for the journal. So there are six authors. All of them appear to be Brazilian and I couldn't find a whole heap of information on any of them really, apart from the main author who's listed first, Anna Caroline Duntas de Lima. I've probably just butchered that. (laughs) Apologies if you're listening from Brazil. She is working at the Department of OT at the University of Paraiba and she's got a PhD in neuroscience and it says on her profile on ResearchGate that she's interested in the area of child development. Mm. And it is interesting because even though it's published in Communication Disorders, Audiology and Swallowing, which seems much more of a speech, and I I will say this whole topic seems much more of a speech pathology topic, but because it's to do with the sensory processing, and I think many of our listeners as OTs know that when it comes to feeding, OTs and speeches work very, very closely together and very well together. And I believe that Pippa, at the end of the term, will probably agree with that because she has a a speech colleague that she works with that she really respects and I believe she got her onto some of this research as well. It might be a it might be a nice time Mim for you maybe to just chat to us about who our guest is going to be at the end of the term and maybe if you can a little summary about why she chose this article. Yes, that's completely fine. Her name is Pippa Van Wyk and she happens to be my sister, but also she has had a very long-standing history in doing feeding Mm. in children and it's just a real passion for her. So she has worked for Queensland Health and I know she'll do some of this introduction, but she has also now gone out into private practice. And because this was such a... To me, unusual article, not quite a straightforward OT article in my mind, I did ask her, why did you particularly pick this article? And she did say it's because it actually opened her up to the importance of breathing yeah, and that that actually has changed her practice mm. and looked at 
that being the first step. And so, again, we can definitely quiz her at the end yeah. of the term, but I think that's a good thing. Introduce, that's great. Yeah. Give her a bit yeah, of background yeah. now and why yep. why this why we're doing this article today. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So if we go back to the journal, CODAS, its impact factor is 0.8. And remember from previous episodes, we have talked about the impact factor and what that means a little bit. A journal's impact factor, we need to compare against other journals of the same type. So we know that, for instance, the Australian Occupational Therapy Journal has an impact factor of close to two. So you can oh. see that the CODAS in comparison is about, you know, probably over half the impact factor of the Australian Occupational Therapy Journal. And remembering that the impact factor is based on how many times articles that are printed in the journal have been cited in other research. I have heard, I think it is important to look at impact factor and that's why we report on each time. Yep. But that doesn't mean an article... Yeah, it's, it's like not, it, that's ex exactly, yeah, that's right. It's simply just a statement of citations from the research. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, mm. Mim, great, great point. Yeah. So what did they want to do in this article? What was the clinical question that they wanted answered? It looks as though they were trying to verify the relationship between sensory processing and changes in the functions of the stomach domatognathic system in mouth well breathing children characterizing their sensory processing and comparing it with that of nasal breathing children now I did do a bit of googling because when I yes. saw that clinical question I was like oh, what is the stomatognathic system <laughs> I now, asked it, Pippa as well <laughs> did you? Yes. I said, what actually is it <laughs> so it's an anatomical system comprising the teeth, jaws and associated soft tissues and it's composed of structures related to vital functions, breathing, sucking, chewing and swallowing and social functions, phonation and articulation directly in connected and related to survival. In this sense, changes in any of them can lead to a general imbalance in this system, leading to difficulties in daily life and consequently in quality of life. And I mm. kept that little sentence in that definition that I had got from Wikipedia. <laughs> yes. Because I thought that's how it's related to OT, right? Because we are all about occupation and participation in life and the quality of that participation. So mm. that was why I'd kind of kept that last little bit. From my understanding from the research, mouth breathing is seen as a less effective way of breathing. And so I think they just wanted to basically see if kids who breathe through their mouth yep. actually process information differently. That's and right. Oral sensory information would be the most obvious. Mm, uh, although it wasn't, interestingly. Not, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But yes, so just seeing if there was an actual processing of sensory information difference yes. between those mouth breathers, breathers yes. and those nose breathers. Now, I am going to take us off on a little bit of a tangent, and this is not Go tangent, based. queen. So yes. don't take any of it. Yes. Don't take any this is gospel truth because it is more just things that I've heard uh, but I have heard that there's an offshoot of orthodontics called orthotropics mm. and I believe there's some talk in the orthotropics of retraining breathing patterns in mm. children because they feel that breathing can affect the formation of the stru of structures of the teeth is just the importance of breathing in even in the mental health realm and I know and again, in this, this is all a 
sensory modulation yes. sensory yes. regulation sphere as well yeah yes exactly because it is often the first calming strategy that we try to encourage people to use and once you start looking at people's breathing you can see sometimes how dysfunctional even though yeah. it's such a regular thing that you do all day every day mm. how dysfunctional it can sometimes be yeah and I think we know from a lot of the research that having taking a deep breath activates our vagus nerve, which is really calming. And mm. so I think that kind of, you know, it all ties in, doesn't it? Breath and calming and sensory. And so it's really fascinating. I love it. I think this is, even though it, it's an unusual article, yes. um, we can see how it can relate in lots of different areas. Yes, absolutely. So a bit of background information about the problem. This is a paragraph directly from the article. So it says, Breathing occurs physiologically through the nasal root, protecting the upper airways, ensuring the proper development of structures and functioning of the craniofacial complex. However, changes in breathing mode are common, especially in children, leading to mouth breathing. The causes of changes in breathing mode can be classified as obstructive, so septal deviation, presence of a foreign body, mucosal hyperplasia, hyperplasia of the pharyngeal or palatine tonsils, and non-obstructive sagging of phonoarticulatory organs and or habitual functional mouth breathing. So that's kind of the background information, which tells us why some kids mouth breathe as opposed to breathe through their nose. And again, this is just me trying to interpret mm, please. <laughs> it a great. little bit. But obviously, we do know that the nose does have a filtering system for germs. So they yes. talk about that. That's what protects the upper airways. Yes. And the mouth doesn't have that filtering system. And I think it is interesting, a little bit like you see water on rocks that gradually yes. erodes things away. Yes. The fact that even though air doesn't seem like a very strong force, because it is so consistent. Mm, day in, day, day out. out. Second yeah. in, second out. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're citing research that says that it can have an effect on both the development, yep. so the formation, that's yes. the craniofacial, not that yes. the yep. crani it, both the development of that and also that function. Yes, of that's right. Yes. In that breathing. So exactly as you're saying, Mim, they say that mouth breathing leads to greater exposure of the upper airways and this leads to inadequate development associated with abnormal functions of chewing, swallowing, tongue and lip posture. In addition to breathing problems, chewing, swallowing, posture and tonicity of speech organs, mouth breathers may also present alterations in speech, voice and body posture which influence their performance of activities. There is also evidence of alterations in smell, taste and auditory system described mm. as sensory dysfunctions. Although studies suggest these dysfunctions, the characterization of other sensory systems, as well as the description of the sensory processing of oral breathers and the implication of these factors in daily life are not yet reported in the literature. And this study is original concerning the relationship between sensory processing and the stomatognathic system of oral breathers. So basically they're saying, we know that there's changes in the posture and structure and function of the craniofacial area in children with mouth breathers, but we don't yet know what the implication of that is on sensory processing mm. function. So that's yes, kind of that's what it. they're trying to find out. Yep. Yes, and it's that 
comes back to that function. Like I know OT specialised in the sensory processing as well, but again, our bread and butter is occupation. Our bread and butter is function. So it's fine to know, hey, it impacts that, but how does it actually impact in their life? And I think it's interesting all the things that they've listed, chewing, swallowing, posture, even posture and the breathing that that has. And tangent <laughs> but just when I think about like things like yoga classes they do talk yes. about having a good posture yes when you're breathing through through your nose and yes. out through your mouth yes and so it seems like it's a little bit of a two-way system that yeah you need to have a good posture to be able to breathe properly but even when you're not thinking about it because it's such an automatic reaction the way you breathe can then affect the posture that you hold absolutely and it's like after you have done a run or some exercise where you have significantly elevated your heart rate and your first instinct is to bend forward and put your hands on your knees because mm. then the air is coming in kind of horizontally yes. you know that's how you feel like you can get a big deep breath so mm. I think that just explains what you're talking about Mim in terms of posture affecting breathing what they're saying is flipping it the other way. Yes. Actually, breathing affect, affects posture as well. Yeah. I think it is quite an interesting article because breathing is such an automatic thing mm. and such a thing that we take for granted. And it can be a hard thing to measure. Mm. I know we'll come to that a little yes. bit. Measuring mouth breathers versus nose breathers. Yes. And so, yeah, something so fundamental yes. could have yes. a vast impact. Yeah. It's interesting. It looks like there's been some other research done about children who are mouth breathers, and it looks as though mouth breathing has been linked to agitation, inattention, sleep disorders, and difficulty in performing activities that require physical mm. effort and postural change. And there's some, there's obviously the references for those within the article, mostly in my experience related to adenoids or tonsils, but interesting that if kids are not sleeping well, obviously they're going to be more agitated and have more oh. difficulty maintaining attention. But for me, it was fascinating to realise, I guess, the extent of the research that's been done on mouth breathing in kids. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, might need to, we might need to interview some dentists. Yes, yes, maybe, absolutely. The yeah. only thing, like this might be more of a question at the end, but the question that I had is because they were saying that mouth breathing can be obstructive or non-obstructive and it, so it can be caused by mm. changes in the structure mm. of the, mm. the child's mouth or it can be habitual function, but if it's a structural thing, the question is, how do you change mm. it? And I'm the wrong person to ask, but I my know. guess <laughs> is that surgery plays a part in some cases. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of my own experience with my own child having her tonsils and adenoids out. She wasn't necessarily a mouth breather, but, you know, a procedure like that for some kids can then significantly open up their mm. nasal passages and enable them to breathe mm. I think it's probably a good question for us to put to Pippa in yes. terms of you know what are the functional implications how do how do you get kids to change from being mouth breathers to nose breathers short of surgery I think it's exactly. a great question yeah, yeah it's a great question. and I think as well as you say we breathe from babies and often some of those surgeries some of those surgeries do happen early on like yes pellets and things like that but we breathe from babies and so we develop our habits 
Yes, absolutely. From babies. That's right. So it's not surprising. You can imagine that it would be very hard to change Mm. a habit of something that you've done almost automatically for the whole of your life. So in terms of participants and sample size, it was a observational analytical and cross-sectional study and they had a convenience sample. Most of the children were boys with an average age of eight years. They also had a control group matched for age and gender. The case group was formed by children with signs and symptoms of mouth breathing, and they were randomly recruited from children seen at a clinic in the hospital. The control group was formed by nasal breathing children without a diagnosis of allergic rhinitis, hay fever, and without signs and symptoms of mouth breathing. And they obtained the data about this through, it looks like their medical record. So the case control, the control group were in good health, randomly recruited from the School of Dentistry, it looks like, at the hospital. Children aged between 5 and 12 years were selected and children who presented with genetic syndromes were excluded from both groups. The other exclusions were orofacial malformations, I'm guessing things like cleft palate, use of orthodontic braces, intellectual disability, neurological disorders, an already diagnosed sensory processing disorder, which I thought was interesting yeah um diagnosed visual and hearing alterations and those who were undergoing speech therapy so yes I guess it's interesting that they excluded kids who already had been diagnosed with sensory processing disorder and I wonder if yeah the results would have been even higher Mm. for the kids with sensory processing disorder because I guess whenever you're looking at this kind of cross-sectional analytical study we're thinking about chicken and egg, right? Where they had to bring mm. into the mirror depended on the circle of... So they had 50 mouth breathers and 50 nose breathers in the study, 68 boys and 32 girls with a mean age of eight. Most were attending elementary school, primary school. So 64% yep. of the mouth breathers and 84% of the nose breathers the sensory processing measure had a mean age of 35.2 about 50 percent of them had completed high school and I know the mean of the children was eight but they pretty much ranged from five to twelve years they did yeah and I think 100 children is a pretty large number yeah uh, yeah yeah, absolutely for studies that relate to occupational therapy I must say like I know some of the bigger medical studies have much larger numbers but I think that's actually not too bad yeah I agree so in terms of ethics and human protection the project was submitted to the ethics committee for research with human beings of the health science sciences center and it looks like it's in in accordance with the resolution of the national health council of the ministry health of brazil and it also stated that the evaluations were only carried out after everyone responsible involved had signed the informed consent form so it looks to me as though the ethics box is ticked um, in terms of in the country of Brazil as well as in their local health centre and getting participants to sign informed consent forms. It's a quantitative research design. It's a convenience sample. So, you know, obviously there's downsides with a convenience sample. Convenience sample means that it's really easy for the researchers to access um, the kids because they're coming to the hospital. But obviously it means that we don't get a wider cross-section of kids from across the population. Yes. And it was correlational research. 
exactly. as well. So we don't know, well, I suppose, what you were saying, chicken and the egg, which comes yes. first. We're not quite sure. That's uh, right. What, it, what the causation is, but yes. they're, they're able to show some correlation, yes. which we can then speculate yeah. about and can still, correlation can still inform our practice. Yeah. Uh, it just can't make it set in stone. That's right. Yep. So what did they do in this research? They got these 100 kids and they put them through a sensory processing evaluation. So they used the sensory processing measure, the home form. They evaluated orofacial motricity through the orofacial myofunctional evaluation. And this looks like, I did a bit of Googling, you probably did too, Mim, but it looks (laughs) like a research-based assessment tool that looks at the appearance, posture and mobility of the lips, tongue, cheek and jaws and also looks at respiration, mastication, chewing and deglutition. A single speech therapist performed the orofacial myofunctional evaluation, then a single occupational therapist completed the sensory processing measure. And for those who are not familiar with the sensory processing measure, it consists of 75 items and must be answered by a parent or primary caregiver of the child and it presents eight standardized and normatively referenced results so you get social participation vision hearing touch body knowledge balance and movement idea planning and total sensory systems the assessment says Mm -hmm. exactly that it assesses the sensory processing praxis and social participation of children between five and 12 years old who are attending school obviously that fits the age range that they picked but that's right they would have picked five to 12 because that's what the assessment absolutely they paired the case group with the control group yes that was a fair number of children they didn't collected all in the same like they collected in the same location in the school of dentistry and yes. or the university of dentistry in Pernambuco uh, but they yeah they make the point that it was not collected at the that exactly the same place in time as yes. the case group but I, I still think it's fairly strong because they did match for the age and the gender mm, absolutely Yeah. The next little bit in the article talks about how the assessment of orofacial motricity was completed. And I quite liked it because I had no idea how it might have been done. So it says um, the kids were in a chair with a back in an upright position with feet supported, upper and lower limbs relaxed and uncrossed, hands on their thighs, mandible, so their jaw parallel to the ground with the head unsupported. Choosing this posture provides more comfort and spontaneity to the head and neck and to assess swallowing and chewing they had to drink a glass of 180 mils of uncarbonated water and a piece of french bread very specific there french that bread. was 25 grams i was like is that french toast or is that anyway i'm sure culturally oh, somebody will tell us yes, yes somebody will tell us what that is and interestingly the French, the piece of bread that was 25 grams was weighed on a precision scale. So obviously they were looking for the assessment to be very standardised. It wasn't just a slice of bread out of your Brumby's mm. loaf. Yeah. It was it was very specifically measured and the entire application of the protocol was monitored and guided by the speech therapist and filmed with the consent of parents or guardians for further analysis. 
it was a qualified OT who did the sensory processing yes. measure, a qualified speech pathologist who, who did the oral facial motricity assessment. And it was a single one. So you're not going to get some of that, the discrepancies in some of those ratings either. In terms of credibility of the data, you know, I think um, obviously from an OT point of view, the sensory processing measure has been standardised and there's good research um, in that tool. So that's obviously a good tool to use. They used SPSS for statistics, which again is a really well-known tool for analysing um, psychometric data. I guess my only comment was, you know, having a single speech therapist and a single OT complete the assessments. I guess obviously that's a flaw of the study. You know, there's no interpretation to rate of reliability that's been established and obviously you know it does highlight in the article that that's an experienced therapist but again what's mm. the definition of an experienced therapist is that someone with five years experience is that someone with 30 years experience and they said they they filmed oral facial motricity for yes. further analysis but then yes didn't, really... didn't talk about any further analysis yeah so the results most mouth breathers presented with alteration in the processing of all senses with a statistically significant relationship when compared to nasal breathers. There That's was a relation. Big. It's huge. It's huge. There was a relationship in mouth breathers between proprioceptive sensory processing and the movement of the cheeks, visual sensory processing and head movement during swallowing and between the type of chewing and tactile sensory processing. And interestingly, it doesn't really then go through what they mean by the type of chewing. Mm. And because I'm not a speechy or re really a feeding therapist, I don't understand that either. And maybe that's something that Pippa can help us understand. Yes. But I thought it was really fascinating all the same. So after analysing the data, it was possible to see that the sensory processing of all systems presents with changes in mouth breathers and that this poor processing is related to oral orofacial mobility as well as functions of the stomatognathic system in addition to the type of chewing. What they're saying is, as we were discussing with correlational research, they're not saying that the mouth breathing is causing the sensory processing. They're just saying that in mouth breathers, we see a difference of sensory processing, no causal relationship there. It's more just about the fact that there's, there's a correlation. And in so many areas as well, like it, proprioception, balance, vestibular, yes, that's movement, right. tactile. That's right. A lot of those systems are related up there. Yep. Yep. But the fact that there is a statistically significant difference. Yes, that's right. And then they say, contrary to what we observed in mouth breathing children, we detected no alterations in the sensory processing of nasal breathing children. This makes clear the influence of mouth breathing in this processing, as this condition does not allow for adequate sensory input, making it difficult to record sensations and possibly changing the entire processing sequence, leading to an inadequate adaptive response to the environment and difficulty in the performance of everyday activities, which again, back to OT, that's kind of our crux. We want to help children participate in all the everyday activities that they need to do. Interestingly, they then talked a little bit about posture and how mouth breathers have to lean forward and they move their arms back. And often mouth breathers have feet that are inverted slightly to get good balance. And their 
basically hypothesizing that this change in posture affects the visual vestibular and proprioceptive system in these kids. They also then talk about the tactile system and smell and how, you know, smell and taste as well and how that impacts in terms of the oral facial muscles and the oral malocclusion. And they talk about kids that have this altered posture or, you know, altered chewing pattern about how they may select food for its consistency and and consequently ease of ingestion and so I guess for me that I was thinking oh right sometimes I think I look at kids and see that they've got a texture issue a problem tolerating textures and I automatically think it's sensory but what about if it is their chewing pattern based on their mouth breathing yes and they know they can't actually chew that and swallow it so they're choosing textures that are easier versus I can't tolerate the texture in my mouth does mm, that make mm, sense yes that makes yeah. sense so instead yeah. of yeah instead of it purely being the texture related it is more a physiological yeah 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 uh, absolutely yeah absolutely thinking about it when you've got something in your mouth you can't really breathe through your mouth yes so, of but course when you've got something through in your mouth you can still breathe through your nose of course yes absolutely that's why it impacts chewing mim you know Mm. when they talk about the chewing the different differences in chewing patterns I have seen some kids in therapy who just seem to not be able to chew stuff right like they put a carrot in their mouth and it's there for 10 minutes Mm. and it's like their little jaw just can't manage it you know they just kind of can't seem to chew it and swallow it it's like they can't get their mouth organized and I guess I've always thought of that in terms of oral motor strength and motor planning are they just generically kind of weak and low tone in their oral motor structures and also yeah do they have the motor planning do they have the praxis to kind to of to... get that yeah to get that happening but maybe there's more to it than well absolutely there is more to it yes. than just <laughs> oral motor strength and praxis I was reflecting a little bit on the proprioceptive side of things mm. that, like that whole like you can't see your nose or your mouth so you can't use vision to assist you in either of those but are there more obvious signs when you mouth breathe that your proprioceptive system picks up that goes, oh, yes, you're breathing, than through your nose? That is pure speculation. But mm. I wonder if that's how somehow the proprioceptive mm. system works. And then... I think that's a pipper question, and I'm going to type it into our little document. <laughs> yeah, thank um, you. Link to proprioception. So I guess, you know, our last two questions are, you know, are these results applicable to clinical practice and how will we change our personal practice moving forwards? I guess for me, you know, I don't do a lot of feeding therapy, but I do ask always about sensory processing. And I guess for me, it's highlighted the impact of mouth breathing on not just feeding therapy, but about Mm. sensory processing in general and how sensory processing then impacts participation in daily life. What I will probably do going forward from today is to include this just in my initial assessment. And I would probably ask parents something like, I obviously already ask about sleep and sleep quality, but following that up with, you know, 
have you ever identified your child as a mouth breather or are you concerned about your child breathing through their mouth? Probably what I would do because I'm not a feeding therapist is I would refer back to the GP. I would probably say to parents, you know, there's some research now about mouth breathers and the effect that has on all sorts of areas of function. And I would probably refer back to the GP and or the dentist. Yes, I was going to say, and that even though, again, I love speeches, I love OTs, that yes. some of this has come out of, like it was the school of yes, or whatever. Of that course, was, that's where they that got the they kids got from. Yep. Yes, and so, yes, it may be that in the area of dentistry they can do that. But exactly at the same time, we already know the importance of good breathing patterns. No, and just knowing that if you've got mouth breathers and you're trying to teach them deep breaths, Mm. that that's going to be really tricky Mm. you know that obviously needs to be assessed medically that means they physically cannot breathe through their nose then no amount of you modeling and practicing with them to teach them how to breathe deeply or through their nose is going to be effective right it is just amazing how much we take breathing for granted and it's amazing how many areas that it affects and Exactly as you said, I sort of knew some of these things, but seeing it all in one place, that it affects sleep, it affects eating, it affects sleep, it may even affect, again, we don't know if it's correlational, not not causational, but it may even affect balance and proprioception. So I think fascinating. Yeah, very interesting article. So thank you, Pippa. I was a bit like yes ah! yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no now, I think it's a great article and I think you know for me the things that I would love Pippa to talk about in more detail is just exactly how you know obviously this has been really influential in her practice but how has it changed her practice um, both in feeding therapy assessment and yes. intervention yes. and obviously because Pippa has done a lot of reading in this more than us which is you know our first time reading the article I would love for her to maybe explain to us in layman's terms what you were talking about Mim so how does that how does mouth breathing link to proprioception and this you know particularly vestibular yeah yeah yeah. how does that all kind of fit in in layman's terms because I think we've tried but um, I'm sure Pippa's going to listen to this and think we've butchered it a little bit. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. It's about opening the conversation. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I think that's it for us today. Sounds we great. hope you've enjoyed listening to this article and we really hope that you can jump on board and join us when we have Pippa uh live talking about the article please send any questions that you might have for Pippa to the email address it is research and reality at exceptional-kids.net and we'll put a link to that email address on the Facebook page and on the Patreon site as well and in the show notes of the this podcast great yep thank you Mim awesome look forward to chatting to you all again soon nice to talk to you mim as always as usual it is it's time for our ask anu section where we ask dr anu bopti from monash university a research question to generally expand our knowledge 
So we're back with the section Ask Anu. So I have Dr. Anu Bopti with me, uh, who we've spoken to a number of times now. And for this week, we just thought we're, we're just trying to start with some of the basics of research and statistics so that we can sort of build a bit of a framework for where we can review articles more confidently as clinicians. So uh, Sarah and I have spoken about it each time because we report on the impact factor of the journal that the article is in, but we thought we might just ask your opinion on what is an impact factor and Mm -hmm. how important it is. Yes, so impact factors, because I work at a university, everyone talks about that a lot more. And I think for a paper, it's not that important when you're reading a paper because what where the importance of impact factor is, I mean, I, I think you all know what it is, but I'll just say the so impact factor is commonly used to Im- evaluate the how important this journal is. So it depends on the number of citations that have occurred from the journal. So it's like a score or a number. So anywhere between one to 10, Kind of, I've never, I've never read a number 10 one, except I've read Nature, some articles in that. But it means that the more the articles get cited from a journal, the higher the impact factor of that journal. So if more people are reading my paper, for example, and I have published it in the British Journal of Occupational Therapy, for example, then every time my paper gets cited, then the journal gets cited. So then the journal starts collecting impact for the citations that have occurred. So in some ways, it's good to publish your papers in a a, a journal that has got some impact so that it it is making an impact. If more people are reading and citing your work, then it is making an impact. If, If your work is has a real niche, and you know, not a lot of people are reading about it, then it is a, there's a chance that you won't get cited that much and the citation so that for me it's just it's not the only way to determine an article or a journal it's by the citation or the impact factor but I know that it is a big thing in academia <laughs> only because you do want to make an impact really you yes. do. is my work actually making a difference so that's why I think it's got it's got a meaning that and that's why of course they do it but that's the reason and why. so and so yeah so the impact factor is how much your an art articles from a particular journal are cited in yeah. other articles other research papers yes correct. and so when you're going to publish a research paper that journal will look at it and decide whether it's of relevance to them and whether they feel like it will be cited, cited. by other yeah. people who read that Yes. So when, so when we review articles for journals, they'll always ask us a question. What do you think of the readability of this? Uh, uh, does it suit our journal? You know, will people read? So we have to give some scores for that. For example, systematic reviews get cited a lot because it is a collection of articles mm. that have been appraised by somebody. Somebody's done all the work to tell you that these articles are fantastic or these are not. So, of course, when I'm say I'm doing a study, first thing I do is I study the literature, what already exists. So then I will go straight to the systematic reviews and I will cite them. Then when I write a paper, I have to cite them because mm. I used that information. So that's how it builds on. That's how the whole research game is, you know, happening, <laughs> building up. Yeah. So the question is, obviously, yeah, I think exactly as you say, within academia, you do need to have a way to measure 
what impact your your particular paper has and it also as clinicians the impact factor can affect us a little bit saying okay this is a more reputable journal but in the modern age of the internet where you can just sort of google scholar search do you think that means that the impact factor in journals is a little bit less relevant or it still has the same yeah, the only thing I would say is like the things you Google. So you, just just letting you all know. So I spoke to the librarian, and she said she asked me, "How much do you think? How much data is on Google's Google compared to on our databases?" Four percent. So Google only has four percent of what this oh. was a few years back. Yes. Oh. So, you know, it won't pick up everything because the, uh, the journals that we want you to, you know, the ones that we as professionals follow are the ones that are peer reviewed. They are done in a systematic way. They are rigorous. They follow ethics. So, and we are a profession, occupational therapy. So we need to follow that ethics. We need to, we are a health profession, you know, so we need to be ethical. So we know for sure that if I pick up the Australian Journal of Occupational Therapy, or if I pick up, you know, whatever, whatever I pick up, uh, rehab, disability and rehab, or, you know, I know that these are reputable journals. Yes. And I know that I am doing my work ethically. So again, be really mindful of what exists on Google, how much exists on Google, you know, and I yes, it's a fast way of getting info, but you know what, anybody can get it. So how am I different occupational therapist? Mm. How am I using that information in my practice? And am I being ethical? So these are the questions. So definitely impact factor matters to every OT who works that you don't want to work out of Google. You want to, you know, guide your practice from a a reputed journal article. So you know that the work so many researchers have done has been peer reviewed, it has been assessed, it has been appraised, and then only we are giving that information to you. So if the journals don't have a good impact factor, they don't care about these kind of things. So they're just, so it can be, it can reflect some of that. Mm, mm. No, that's excellent. Well, but also I, don't forget that impact factors depend on the area of practice. So for example, in occupational therapy, our journals don't have very high impact factors because we're not a very commonly read occupation by lots of medical profession. So we, but you know, a three is a good impact factor for us. Two point something is a good impact factor for us. So it's not that we have to be a 10 to, you know, so it depends on the area that we practice as well. Yeah, so you can still have good articles in impact factors of three or less. Yes, absolutely. But impact factor can still be important because exactly as you say, there's no accountability for things that aren't published in peer review journals that haven't gone through that rigorous testing. No, so if, they've gone through, if they've gone through the peer review process, I would say it is still a good step because maybe the journal is just trying to build themselves up. So it's a good thing if they have a rigorous, so you need to look at the editors of the journal and the processes of the journal and what do they actually do to make their, the articles that they publish at that level that, that you feel confident reading them. Mm. Mm. No, that's excellent. No, I think that's been helpful. So not only have we just talked about impact factor, we've talked about journals in general and Mm. what we're looking for and not being completely swayed by impact factors, but keeping them in mind with a number of other things as we read the articles. Well, that's excellent. And we will talk to you next time as well, Anu, in our Ask Anu section.
Thanks, Thanks. Anu. Kim. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We're excited to announce the date of our first live podcast in which you can join us. This will involve us interviewing Pippa Van Wyk, a paediatric occupational therapist, and she has extensive experience and passion in the area of feeding, and she picked one of our research articles this term. Pippa will share insights into her work as a feeding therapist and help us understand how her article of choice has shaped her clinical work. We're holding the podcast recording on Wednesday the 7th of September 2022 at 8pm Brisbane time and we'd love you to submit your clinical questions beforehand so that we can send them on to Pippa and you can do that by emailing us at researchandreality at exceptional-kids.net so that's research reality at exceptional-kids.net and you will have the opportunity to ask questions on the night but if you can send the questions that means people will be able to prepare and answer those questions more thoroughly. So remember that this is a complimentary invitation for our listeners out there who have listened and supported us for the first term of our podcast. So thank you and tell others about the opportunity. If you can't make it on that particular evening, a recording will be released on the podcast. So don't worry, you will not miss out. Details of signing up for that are available in our show notes and on both our Facebook page and Facebook group. Our second announcement is that Pippa Van Wyk and her colleague, speech pathologist Carly Betts, are holding a two-day Introduction to Feeding Basics Assessment and Intervention Workshop on Friday the 2nd of September and Saturday the 3rd of September. Again, a link to that workshop is available on our show notes and through our Facebook page and group. I know it's very short notice, so get in there because that will be a great opportunity if you live in Brisbane, Unfortunately, it's based in Brisbane. We love providing this podcast to you free to enable you to put great research into reality for your families. We would love to engage with our listeners more and if possible, have you support our podcast. There's a number of ways you can do this. One, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We are aimed at occupational therapists, but some of our topics are certainly relevant for other professions as well. Two, rate and review us on your podcast app. This helps others find the podcast. Three, Email us, if you like, at researchandreality, that's R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y at exceptional-kids.net. Check out our Facebook page where you'll be kept up to date with all our news, www.facebook.com slash researchandrealityot. That's research, A-N-D, reality, O-T. You can also become a Patreon supporter from as little as a dollar a month. This podcast takes time, so if you'd like to support us, you can. When you support us through Patreon, you get extra perks as well. For a dollar a month, you get to be a research rookie and get access to our closed Facebook group. It's different from the page as the group allows you to interact with ourselves and each other to share about articles that we review and much more. For $10 a month, you get to be a research roadie and you get access to the closed Facebook group get a blank critique form and a copy of the article in advance, if copyright permits, and a transcript of our podcast so you don't have to frantically take notes while listening. You'll also get access to our bonus episode each term where we interview an expert in that term's topic who has picked one of the articles. And for $15 a month, you are a research rock star and you get the benefits of the research rookie and research roadie, but you don't just get a recording of the bonus episode, you get to be part of it live and pose your questions to our expert in real time. You can sign up 
through Patreon by going to patreon.com slash researchandrealityot.com. That's research, A-N-D, realityot.com. So there's heaps of ways to get involved, support us, and engage with the Research and Reality podcast more. As our first supporters, we'd like to thank you for listening and give you the Research Rockstar perks for free. Just email us your details and you'll get all the Research Rockstar perks for free the rest of this year, that's 2022, including being part of our bonus episode on the OT role in feeding therapy with Pippa Van White. After this term, though, we'll be making the Facebook group a closed group, so get in quick. And feel free to still financially support us via Patreon for the rest of this year if you wish. <laughs>